Good morning. Scripture, it comforts us and it convicts us, right? If you've spent much time in the Word of God lately, you recognize that there's two sides of that sharp sword, and there's the one side of the sword uh, that gives us uh, wounds and it convicts us, but that same sword that wounds us and convicts us comforts us and protects us. Well, in the same way, the preaching of God's Word as it is being expounded uh, in the church biblically ought to wound and it ought to heal. And so if we come before the congregation every single week and we only expect to have our ears tickled uh, or to be just absolutely just comforted uh, to no ends, we've come to recognize less than half of the usage of the preached word. The preached word also should wound us. We recognize even as Christians in this room, as we have been endowed with the Holy Spirit at salvation, at conversion, the moment of regeneration of uh, the unbeliever, and now they are God's child. They have this helper but there is still left what Scripture and Paul calls uh, the flesh, the outer man. That is, there is still this body that my regenerated soul is still encapsulated in on this side of eternity. And, and with that, i got to recognize there is still much for me to do in cooperation with the Holy Spirit as I'm living this life. And that's something that in uh, modern Christianity, we don't hear much of. And there's part of this text that we're going to get into that we're very comfortable with, isn't there? The exclusivity of Christ, that there is one way to eternity. We're in Texas, people are going to believe that, right? That there is only one way into eternity. There's one door, and his name is Jesus Christ. We're great with that. But when we read this text, even as you've heard it, and we'll get into it in more detail, it doesn't just say that there's this one gate, but attached to this one gate is one path. And it's a narrow path. We get uncomfortable with that in modern Christianity because we believe, well, if Christ has set me free, then I'm free indeed. But what are we free from and what are we free for? I have not been bought and redeemed and freed from sin to continue walking a broad path. I have been freed and given entrance into the narrow gate so that I now have the freedom to find joy and pleasure in the narrow way. Psalm 1611, one of my favorite Psalms verses in, in the world. For you have made known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Recognize the context of where those things are found. Pleasure, joy are found on the path to life. We got to recognize something in modern Christianity. We have to, as we will in this text, we're going to stand very strong and stern on the exclusivity of the gospel. But we ought not to lighten our grip, or our foot on the equal importance of walking the path 
of life as regenerate people endowed with the Holy Spirit with a new heart. See, there's comfort in the preaching of God's Word, but there's also a sword with two edges with great conviction. We have a common mistake in our day that we have so many people at one time or another, whether it was when they were little or whether sometime throughout their life, where they say, I have walked through the gate. I've, I've walked through the gate. I am into the narrow door, but their entire life is walking the wide path. And the problem is, and they're still going to tell you, I'm on my way to the kingdom of God as surely and as confident as I can. When scripture tells me, that these people are deceived and they're really on their way to the kingdom of hell. Because there is no father, there is no loving God who is going to give us a narrow entrance just to allow us to walk the broad path that is the cause for all of the grief and sin in your life. You're not going to have a father who's going to save you from that and then say, now it's fine, go walk that out for the rest of your life and I'll come get you when I'm ready. You have a father who has not left you alone without a helper, who has given you the narrow door, which is Christ, and given you the narrow way, which if we will walk down it, Scripture promises us, there's your path to life, there's your joy, there's your pleasure forevermore, and you can't go find it anywhere else. And so we're left with the question, if I'm still going in other places to find it, have I deceived myself about going through a door that I have never entered? We have this culture where it's if I prayed a prayer, if I asked Jesus into my heart, if, if there was this time that I can go back to and I can grab that moment of praying a prayer in my bedroom, maybe mom led me in this prayer. And then after, we live in a culture where we say, okay, if you did that, don't you let anybody ever tell you otherwise. Don't you let a single soul tell you that you're not saved. The problem with decisionism, we can call it decisionism, this idea that what we need to do is grasp onto that moment we decided, that moment that I prayed a prayer, uh, that moment that there was, this, there was this moment in my life where I remember that I just decided, that I said, I, I, Jesus, come to my heart, I want you. We don't find that in the pages of Scripture. That's the problem with that. The problem with decisionism is we just don't see it as we open up the pages of Scripture, but it fills the pulpits of America. There's our problem. And, and we'll jump into that even as we tease apart this text and look at other texts in Scripture. We don't see this one-time decisionism where we say, how do you know you're saved? Well, I remember in my bedroom when I was eight when my mom prayed a prayer with me, and that's how I know I'm saved. You never see that in Scripture. What you see in Scripture is examine yourself to be sure that you're in the faith. Test yourself. Unless you see that you have not passed the test, but I hope that you do find that you do pass the test. But, nevertheless, you need to examine yourself. First John, or even the Gospel of John, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. First John, anyone who uh, does not obey the commands of God, the love of the Father is not in them. But I made a decision. I went through that narrow door. Yes, but have you been empowered by the Holy Spirit to walk the narrow way. See, the Christian biblically has assurance not in a prayer they prayed, 
but in a transformed life of regeneration that the Holy Spirit promises to give to the believer. And so the assurance for a genuine Christian is this. I wake up every single day, and I'm far from perfect, but the Lord conforms me and sanctifies me every day, and I fight and wrestle with sin like I never did before, and I'm sanctified, and just as the Corinthians teaches me, 2 Corinthians 5.17, that I'm a new creation, the old is gone, behold, the new has come. That's how I know I'm a Christian, because of the regeneration that has happened in me. And the problem with our evangelistic culture is this. That we're going to say, there's a narrow door, you walk through that, you don't have to worry about sanctification. When we ask sanctification isn't something to worry about, sanctification is something to long for. Sanctification is the imprimatur of God in my life saying, I'm not leaving you the way you were as an orphan enslaved to sin, I'm taking you out of that and you're mine. And that path to pleasure and joy forevermore is found on a very narrow way. Really, you can sum it up this way, our preaching point. Entrance into the kingdom of God is only possible through the substitutionary work of Jesus on our behalf, which is made evident by a lifelong, joyful submission to God. Look at Matthew. If you aren't already there, go ahead and turn to Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14. If you're there, you see that Jesus is using two pairs of metaphors uh, with two destinations in mind, once one, each one of them complementary to one of the metaphors. Excuse me. But what you need to recognize about metaphors, you got to be careful when it comes to metaphors because we want to keep metaphors metaphors. But metaphors are actually real-life examples of things that signify actual realities. So when we're talking about here, we have a narrow gate. Well, we're not actually talking about a gate here. We're using the gate as a metaphor as it relates to something real. When we talk about a narrow way, we're not talking about, I'm going to walk out the door and there's going to be about a six-inch path that I need to make sure I'm toe and heel walking that. We're not talking about that. That's a metaphor saying that there is a way in our life that Christ commands us in the words of Scripture that says this is how your life ought to look like. And it is, metaphorically, a very narrow way of living your life. There is a very narrow way to enter into the promise of eternal life. And there is one road that I walk on as Christ is leading me to the consummation of eternal life. And he says something about that way when you look at verses 13 and 14. We have the narrow gate and we have a narrow path. And it says the enter by the narrow gate in verse 13. And in verse 14 it says the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Now this is an important scripture that even when I was a young Christian, when I got saved, this one piqued my attention. Because, you know, I've learned all my life that Jesus loves everybody. Everybody's gonna, everybody has an opportunity. There's going to be a, such a big party in heaven. Uh, and I've been taught that my whole life. And then I said, you know what? I'm saved. I'm 15 years old. I'm going I'm to open up Scripture. And the first book I read in Scripture was Revelation. And I thought, okay, got to go somewhere else for a minute. All right. And I flip over to Matthew. And it says, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And I thought, my Sunday school teacher never taught me that. I, Jesus is telling me that there is going to be way less people 
going to eternity with God than I was led on to believe my entire life. And that's because something that we talk about much in evangelicalism, which is great, which is the exclusivity of Christ. We recognize when we have a narrow gate that we have one entrance into God's kingdom. There's one. There's not two. You can't get in through the side. You're going to get in one way into the kingdom, and it's not through you. See, that's another problem that we have, not so much in the church, at least explicitly, but either implicitly and particularly outside in our world. We have this idea that I'm the gate to my destiny, right? I cause the wind to blow on my cells to get me to go where I need to go. And we're going to say, that is the wide path that leads to destruction, and that is no way into eternal life. There is one way, there is one gate, and there is one substitution. Because remember, gate is a metaphor. The metaphor of the gate is Jesus. When he says, I am the door. As a matter of fact, he says that. He, he tells us that in John 10, 9. You want to know, how do I know this is Jesus in the metaphor? John 10, 9, he says literally, I am the door. Right? If, you, if you're like me and you need people to spell it out for you, Jesus does that. And he says, hey, we see here in Matthew 13, enter by the narrow gate. That's the only gate you can get in. And it's like, okay, I got it. Who's the gate? Where's the gate? Jesus says, I'm the gate. I'm the door. You enter in through me, what John 10.9 says, anyone who enters by me will be saved. And he will go in and out and find pasture. I love that. You pair that with Psalm 16.11, you found yourself something pretty special, didn't you? I enter by this narrow way, and I'm walking on this narrow path. I'm going to be saved, and then there's still this freedom that I'm going to have in Christ Jesus to go in and out and find green pasture. There is this opportunity and privilege for the Christian who is in the narrow gate, has walked through the narrow gate, which is Christ for salvation, and is walking along that narrow path. There's going to be this freedom to graze in green pastures, which is another metaphor. I don't see you guys eating grass much. Another, another example okay, of saying, you made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And one of the craziest things that I've seen in the church in this century is that we're saying, it's such a bummer that if I follow Jesus, I have to say no to all these other things. And it's like, you have been saved from all those things for all the things of God's kingdom. You've been saved from the path of destruction for the path that leads you to green pastures that you may go in and out and graze. And that's really one of the problems. I'm not even there yet. I could probably preach this whole sermon without looking at these notes, okay? The reality of, like, if that doesn't bring joy to you, that, ask yourself, do you even know the narrow gate? If you don't find joy in the fact that you have been delivered from the wide path that leads to destruction and you have been put on a narrow path that leads to life, if that doesn't appeal to you at all, you need to consider the deception of your own life. Because we need a substitute. Now, that was the whole point of that, saying you that there is a narrow door. It's, it's a metaphor. Jesus. Now, if you want to continue that metaphor, we talk about doors. If, door, if this door is Jesus, then the other doors have to include the other people. Right? If I'm going to enter through Christ, he is the door, okay? Then that means, am I the door? Okay, well, I recognize I'm a pretty pitiful door that's going to lead you probably nowhere good apart from Christ. So I'm out, okay? Uh, who are you depending on for your entrance into the kingdom? Can't be you. You're a pretty terrible door. My wife told me before, you make a better window than a, no, a better door than a window, but I don't make a better door. As a matter of fact, I make a pitiful door and a pretty bad window. 
okay, then who am I going to trust in? I'm going to trust in my parents. My parents are the ones who said I was saved. Now, this is parents. Please do your children a huge, huge, considerate favor and do not affirm their salvation when there is no fruit of salvation. Because this is, again, right, we're talking about doors, we're talking about people. Who am I relying on for my salvation? Okay, Christ says it's the only way. I can't rely on myself. Well, mom and dad told me that when I was four years old, I prayed that prayer. And so every time I wonder how about my salvation, I go back and say, mom and dad told me that I'm good. And so there's, they're my door. They're my door because if I just enter through them, I get there. If I trust in them because they told me I'm there, we're going to say, Mom, Dad, no, no, no. We're going to make sure our children trust in the door, the only door that leads to eternal life. And I'm not going to be the reason why anyone should have false assurance because the assurance that we need is found in Scripture as I enter the narrow gate and as I'm walking the way that is hard that leads to life. We need a substitution. And Scripture tells us that. And we have this great substitution. 2 Corinthians 5.21 gives us the perfect description of what we need to enter in to the kingdom of heaven. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Did you see the substitutionary concept in that text? He made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The fact that you and I cannot be God's righteousness going through our own door and going along our own way, it has to be something imputed or given to us apart from us. In this path, in this gate, in this door, is a reality of the substitutionary need for you. You can't be your own door. Your door is full of sin. Your door opens up to eternal destruction, but yet we have a door here who was made to be sin when there was no sin in him whatsoever so that in him we might become the righteous of God. We might enter through the door of righteousness leading to eternal life, the exclusivity of Christ. And we recognize there is no other substitute. We already showed you John 10, 9. Acts 4, 11 through 12 is another one of those. We understand that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that is given among men by which they must be saved. There's, there's a very clear picture in Scripture of the exclusive nature of salvation in Christ alone. You're not getting any other way. You can put it this way, point number one, you need to stress the exclusivity of Christ. Stress the exclusive reality that there is salvation found in no one else. There is no door that is going to get you into eternal bliss, eternal life than Christ. Now, imagine yourself, you're in a 10-story building and it's burning down. Okay, I was a volunteer firefighter for a few years, and there was a lot of times uh, I had to go to these burning buildings and have to put them out. And I uh, never had a 10-story building, but I can imagine as hot as those smaller fires were being entrapped in the 10th story in a 10-story building, and I can't get out. And I am stuck, and every single way I look, destruction, 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 everywhere I go. Imagine somebody comes up to you and says, 
I found a way out. I went all the way up and down this thing, and now I'm up here to try to get people out. But here's you. I've been through this whole thing. You got to follow my directions. There is one way, okay? You got to follow me, and you got to go exactly where I tell you. You got you to walk exactly the places I tell you to go, and do not leave my side. Imagine your response saying, that's pretty narrow-minded of you, telling me there's only one way out of here. You, you, you wouldn't do that, right? It makes no sense when your life is on the line and somebody with such confidence and authority and assertiveness that has some kind of validity, perhaps they have a, I don't know, uh, they probably have the suit on. They have their you know, SC, SCBA on. And, and you're like, oh, you're a firefighter. There's some credentials there. You've been in a lot of these. Of course you know where to go. I would be obliged and honored if you'd get me out of here and save my life. We're not going to say, I think I'm going to try to go my own way. You're not going to do it. You recognize the metaphor. It connects to our life even today. Like Our world is a four-alarm fire, and it is fully involved. And we have, think about this. All right? Maybe it's ten stories up. We have a God incarnated and come down, all the way down to the level of, of earth and, and, and enclose himself not in, a, not, in a, not in a firefighter outfit, not in SCBA, but in humanity, in the flesh, and said, I'm here for you, and I have come to take your place so that you would not receive destruction. Follow me. Right? It wouldn't do any good for the person trapped in the 10-story building to say, got it, I trust in you. Firefighter walks down, and he sits there, and he waits. And the firefighter, what are you doing? You told me to trust in you. I'm just I'm sitting here waiting. No, no. Follow me. Come with me. And that's not what you said. Or at least that's not what I thought. No, no, no. If you you got to follow me. Your life needs to be patterned after me. Your steps need to be my steps. My way needs to be your way. How you know you're going to receive salvation is that you are imitating me and you'll get out of here and you'll find freedom. See, that's, that's really what the gospel teaches us about salvation, is it's following Christ, it's imitating Christ, it's taking the steps of Christ, but that's not how people interpret it in our culture. We are in a 10-story, fully involved fire, and we have our arms crossed, and we're going to say, hmm, I just have to say I trust him. I really don't, there is really nothing else left for me to do. And then we get a really, really interesting, twisted view of what trust means. Because trust isn't saying, I trust you. Trust is trusting them and following them to eternal life. The exclusivity of Christ. You're not going to find it anywhere else. And maybe this is a reminder. Maybe we don't have that many people dealing with the exclusivity of Christ in here. Perhaps we do. Uh, but really, you've got you to proclaim the single way to life through the righteousness of Christ. We're talking about the gate you're going to say there is one way. There is no other way. You can't find it any other way. And then what we need to do, the second thing, reject alternative routes. You're going to reject alternative routes. There is no other way. If there was another way, if there isn't another way, God would have been kind and loving to show us. And let me tell you something. If there was another way, I'm sure the Father would have taken it. Because if there was another way, and yet God chose to send his beloved Son he wouldn't be a very loving God. But because there was only one way through one man and his name was Christ, we are rest assured because of the character and nature of God that there is one way. 
through the death, through the life of Christ. Now, I get this, and we've touched on it already, but if Christ is sufficient, then why is this a requirement for me to live righteously when I can't do anything to earn my salvation? That's what we get all the time. You need to obey Christ. You need to follow Christ. Whoa, 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 whoa. You told me the exclusivity of Christ. You told me that there was a way to enter the gate. Yes, but what does the text say? Enter the narrow gate. And then it says in verse 14, the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So we're recognizing we're not just talking about a gate. We're talking about the way. And, and, and here, detractors, anybody with a critic, critical mind here, think about this. How, if you're going to say, no, no, it's all the same, right? The way, the door, it's all just me trusting in Christ. How hard was it for you? Was it, was it a hard, the way hard for you to say, I trust in Christ? No, the way you learned it, the easiest thing you ever did. So it doesn't make sense to assume that the, the way being hard is just me at eight years old praying a prayer. It's not hard. So my life, my experience doesn't even match Scripture. So what does it mean by the way is hard? I think it means exactly what Jesus meant for it to say. Deny yourself, take up your torture device called a cross, and follow me. I always remind people, you recognize when Jesus said that, he had not been crucified. So to the hearer, that was a very interesting example for him to say, take up a cross that had no Christian, no Jewish significance at the time. But yet, this was the road that Jesus was calling them to walk on, a a road of self-denial and suffering is what it looks like to follow Christ. The way is hard. You see, we're comfortable, right? We're comfortable with a narrow way. We've learned that our whole lives. The rest of the world's not comfortable with that, but hey, we grew up in church. We're comfortable with that. But are we comfortable with the reality that there's not only a narrow gate, there is a narrow way? We can't ignore the narrow way because the narrow way is what gives true assurance. How do I know that I've entered into the exclusive means of salvation in Christ alone? Was it through a prayer? No, it's through Christ, his death on my behalf, the helper, the Holy Spirit that he has given me at regeneration, and he is causing me to walk in his commandments, and I have no way to doubt the salvation that has been wrought in my soul because I'm following Christ. You need no more assurance than that, but that takes a clear look at the tenets of scripture. We talk about the narrow way, and this is why we have to understand there is a narrow way. We just spent this entire time on the Sermon on the Mount, didn't we? And we called it last week the end of the ethics section. Ethics. Interesting. Jesus spends his whole time saying, here's how the world lives. Here's how you must live. You think that murdering people is bad? You better know that hating people is murder in your heart, and you have broken the Ten Commandments. You've never committed adultery. Have you ever lusted after a woman in your heart? Because if you have, you've committed adultery. You won't forgive people? Jesus won't forgive you. These are, I'm quoting scripture. Does that not seem like the hardest thing that had ever existed in the history of ever to do those things? 
that we read from Matthew 5 all the way here to Matthew 7? Yes, a very narrow way. A very narrow way. Well, how can I ever do this? This is the question you see throughout the gospel. Well, how can anyone be saved? Jesus says, ah, exactly. But for man, this is impossible. But through God, all things are possible. How is it possible for me to walk the narrow way? Through God, through Christ, through entering the narrow gate, which is Christ alone, and him keeping you on the path of life. There's your assurance. There's Matthew 5 through 7 applied in the life of the Christian. So we're going to call our people to obedience? Absolutely. And this isn't just, you know, a newfangled Christianity. I mean, this is Christianity from day one. Did you know before Christians were called Christians, they were called followers of the way? Did you know that? I mean, that is the earliest name that the church was given. We see it. I, I, there's a couple of examples. I'll at least give you one. Acts 9-2. Saul asked the high priest for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Okay. They were the way. I mean, you recognize included in that moniker, in that name, is the commitment of saying, I don't just say I'm a follower of Jesus. I follow the way of Jesus. I mean, this is just basic historical Christianity in its earliest forms all the way throughout history. And still churches that are faithful today understand that as I go through the gate, I walk the way. I don't know I can do that. I've talked about it a, a little, briefly, but I want you to remember, how do, how do I know this is, this is indicative of a regenerate person? We've talked about this verse throughout the Gospel of Matthew, but you have to remember Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. There are other verses in Jeremiah uh, and Isaiah that talk about the, the new covenant that is going to be given to the nations, but this one is... is in, in my opinion, one of the most clear realizations of the fulfillment of righteousness in the regenerate heart. And you see it in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. And we have here the prophet Ezekiel as God's mouthpiece. He's saying this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all of your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. What tense was all that in? I, 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 I. And it ain't talking about you, and it ain't talking about me. I, can, I will walk the narrow way as I enter the door, because if the door is the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then I recognize the empowerment of obedience is going to be God will sprinkle me clean. God will cleanse me. God will give me a new heart. God will give me his spirit. God will remove the heart of stone from me and God will give me a heart of flesh. God will put his spirit within me and God will cause me to walk according to his statutes and God will cause me to be careful to obey all his rules. That narrow way is starting to look a lot more attractive to someone who understands the doctrine of regeneration and understands what Scripture teaches about life and life abundantly. 
Life abundantly is found on the narrow way. And you're not getting to the narrow way apart from the exclusivity of Christ. And it is the exclusivity of calling on the name of Christ, you turning from your sins and pleading for the God of the universe to save you through the righteousness of Christ that puts you on a narrow road and empowers you to walk the way of difficulty. Because it is difficult in the eyes of the world, and even in the eyes of the Christian, with this outer shell that we talked about, to day by day deny myself, take up my cross, and follow Christ. It is a narrow way, and it is hard. But Jesus also said, if any of you are heavy laden, if any of you are weary, come to me and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Get that, my yoke. You know what a yoke is? It's a tool for work. It's a weight. It, it's, it's to tie two oxen together so they could walk in unison so that their labor would be on their shoulders so they could do the work that was before them. And Jesus says, my work is light. My burden is easy. He says, there is a yoke, there is work, and there is a burden, but I have made it easy for you because I will cause you to walk in it. We see the clarity of the necessity of us to display lifelong obedience to God. If we say we've walked through the narrow gate, then we're saying that I'm gonna, every day I'm going to display lifelong, joyful obedience to God. That's point number two. You can sum it up that way. You need to display lifelong, joyful obedience to God. As you write that down, you can turn to John 14. I'm going to skim over a couple of, well, a couple of chapters, but give you some highlights. We read in the worship, Valerie had read parts of John 14 that I hope warmed you up and got you ready for this moment in our sermon. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Okay, there's, there's a command and call for obedience. Right? If you say you have the love of the Father... You say you have salvation, you're going to obey the commandments of the Son. And he says, hey, and here's how you're going to be able to do that, verse 16. I'm going to ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. And then verse 21, skip down to verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Verse 23, Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come to me or and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father who sent me. So you're like, well, hey, Jesus, but what does God think? Well, here's, here's what God thinks. The word that you hear is not mine. It's God's. This is God's word to you. But here's, here's the good news, or here's the comfort. If you're saved, if you're regenerate, verse 26. Again, the helper, the Holy Spirit. If you weren't who the helper was, right? It, he then says, here's the helper. The helper, the Holy Spirit, will teach you. Now go to the next chapter, verse 1. I am the true vine. Chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that bears fruit. Again, metaphor. Fruit is akin and equals good works, that I'm living obediently to God. So, I mean, there's the metaphor. 
Uh, if anyone does not follow me obediently, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. And so, skip to the verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. And then verse 8, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. And so prove, did you hear that? So prove to be my disciples. What's the assurance of genuine regeneration in Scripture? That you would live the narrow way, so proving to be my disciple. Well, that sounds like that sounds like legalism. No, legalism is on the other side of regeneration of saying, I believe that I can work my way to God, and so I can prove to be God's through my work apart from Christ. That's legalism. That's also heresy. We're not saying that. The Bible teaches otherwise. You can do no good apart from me, is what Christ says. So in Christ, you can. And in Christ, you would bear fruit, much fruit, and prove to be my disciples. You need assurance. It's called walking according to the tenets of Scripture. You say, well, I can't do that. Well, there's your need for the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't do it? That's when we got a question, why not? Because over and over again in Scripture, it promises me that you're going to fail, you're going to fall short, and you repent, but the nature and character of your life is going to be obedience to the Word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then just to continue... Uh, verse 26, when the helper comes, I'm going to send to him, and he will proceed from the Father, and he'll bear witness about Christ. I mean, think about that. You are given the Holy Spirit, proceeding from the Father, and then again in verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Did you see all of those examples of Jesus saying, I am the door, you enter in me, I'm not leaving you alone. Over and over again, he says, I'm sending you the helper. I'm sending you the helper. I'm sending you the helper. And the helper is going to be he who keeps you on the narrow way. And the great thing about a helper, you fall off the narrow way, fatherly discipline kicks in. Gets you right back on that narrow way. How do I know I'm a Christian? When I fall, when I fall, the Lord helps me up. If I need discipline, he gives me discipline. If I need correction, he gives me correction with a fatherly hand that is both heavy and soft. Both parts of that sword that wounds me and it heals me. You don't know, if you're not regenerate, you know nothing about that reality of the Father's love. Because the scripture teaches us right then when we just read that the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Because apart from the narrow door of Christ, all that the Spirit is doing in your life is convicting you of the judgment to come. You don't know the comfort of the helper. You don't know the comfort of conviction of keeping you on that narrow way. You don't, you don't know the comfort of the Father because you haven't entered the narrow gate. But in God's kindness, he still has the Spirit convicting the world of the judgment to come. You want the love of God, you need to respond to the holiness and justice of God in Christ. 
And as you do that, you need to display a lifelong obedience to God. And there's your proof of salvation that I can, although and imperfectly. I'm not preaching a Wesleyan perfectionism, you recognize. Like, you ask my wife, I'm far from perfection. I got to repent more than I want to admit. But what I am able to do, apart from me because of Christ, is able to repent and get right back on that narrow road. And there's the proof of the regeneration of my heart. The problem in our culture is redacting fruit and obedience from the gospel. It weakens and obscures the message of regeneration. Did you understand that? If we redact this idea of obedience and good works, it weakens and it obscures the message of regeneration. Right? Maybe you know, I don't know the doctrine of regeneration. The doctrine of regeneration, you enter in the narrow door, then you are saved and God regenerates you through the work of the Holy Spirit through a process called sanctification. And so, therefore, you are not the same person yesterday. As a matter of fact, you're not the same person at all, according to 2 Corinthians 5.17. And that work of regeneration is not just something that happens to you at glorification. It's something that happens to you for the rest of your life in sanctification. And we've lost, in large part, this idea of the regeneration of the man because we forget about the obedience that's necessary as we look at the proper, clear instruction of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you are a regenerated soul. That means you're going to be able to fight sin through the power of the Holy Spirit. You're going to be able to slay sin, kill it, and submit yourself to God and walk according to his ways. There's the joy of the Christian faith, lifelong joyful obedience. God, thank you that I'm not captive in the sin that I was in. Thank you that you have freed me from the bondage of the schemes of Satan that ruined my life. And thank you for creating in me a clean heart and putting in me your spirit that has then regenerated me, that is then conforming me now to your image. Thank you, and I am pleased to submit myself to you. It's necessary, as we look at the rest of this text, as we think about verse 13b, the second half of verse 13, look at this. For the gate is wide. We're back in the main text, Matthew 7. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. You know, infrastructure in our society, even here in New Braunfels, you're seeing a lot of infrastructure going in, aren't you? Uh, infrastructure is built in advance for the foot traffic that is expected to be there. And here, Jesus is using a metaphor, and he's saying this, it's big. This road is huge. They look, it looks like the five in Southern California, 20 lanes on each side. And it's going right into L.A. I'm just, I'm just kidding. That would be the way that leads to destruction. But you knew that if you're from California. All right. The gate is wide, and the way is easy, and it leads to destruction. And not a lot of turns. It's pretty, it's, you can close your eyes and still probably get to the end. You may bump into a couple people, which uh, you tend to do, and you can't resolve conflict because you're not regenerate. Uh, you tend to bump into people on the way, but you're still all going in the same direction. And here's the thing about the wide path. Everyone says, well, everyone else is here, and everyone else is still saying, this is the way to heaven. This is the way to eternity. And look, all these people are telling me that I'm going to heaven, but, and there's a, there's a bunch of people over there got way off track, over there in that little narrow road down there, and uh, they're all saying that they're going to heaven, but there sure ain't a lot of people over there. And if there ain't a lot of people over there, and there's a lot of people over here, I'm thinking majority wins. And yet, 
get convicting here for you and me. You were over there walking around like this saying, look at them fools over there, right, on that wide road. And you're not even telling them. Like, you know what that road is. You know where that road leads. And that's some of you in here. That's the regenerate ones. What about the unregenerate ones? You're over there on the wide road, and you're saying, look at those legalistic people over there. Right? I'm a Christian too, and we're all going to the same place called deceived. So we have people who don't want to tell people that they're on the wide road, and we have people on the wide road who are deceived into believing they're going somewhere that they're not. And then we're, but we're all in some way walking like this, thinking everything's okay. And it's not. We have to recognize the scripture when it teaches, when Jesus is saying, I have come down here from my throne in heaven to give you salvation. And then we walk around like this. It's very nice of God to come down here like that, clothe himself, suffer for me. Very sweet. All right, All right and I don't need breakfast. And I got a lot of other things to do today. Uh, God will understand uh, if I just go do what I want. And I'll come back later and figure it all out then. Like, what kind of narrow way life is that? The fact that God is an appetizer in my life, he's a side dish, he's that other thing in my life that if I have time, I'll give it to him. When Jesus says, no, 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 I'm coming to give you my life. The father said, I'm sending my son for you. But yet we think it's sufficient in our deception to only live for Christ some. which is that, That's the deception, right? That in our American Christianity that we have exported worldwide, that we think that it's us who, or it's God who's privileged to have us, right? You know, it's his privilege. Like, I'm, he's probably glad I'm coming. You know, I'm probably living that place up a little bit. And we're like, we have the wrong view, right? That it is not the doctrine of regeneration. That is not the doctrine of substitutionary atonement of Christ. It is not the doctrine of salvation. You were dead, and he made you alive. You were of no good and no value to him, and he made you precious to him through his son. We can't be deceived. Many will enter through the narrow gate, believing that they are heading to heaven. You got to recognize that because if you don't recognize that, I mean, I know for a fact where church is like 600, 650 people every Sunday. There are people in this room who say, I'm going to heaven. And, and we're saying statistically, there's people in here who believe they're going, but they're deceived and they're going somewhere completely different. Because although they may have said, said sometime in their life that they walked through this narrow door, that they, have, they don't know nothing about a narrow path leading to life. They know nothing about the joy of the Lord. They know nothing about the pleasures of God. They know nothing about the fullness of life in Christ Jesus on the narrow way. They know nothing about it. And yet they say they're, they're saved. The regenerate person finds joy and pleasure in Christ on the narrow path. We don't sit here and say, man, I wish I could go do those things those other people are doing. And when the Apostle Paul says what? The time that has passed is sufficient for those things. Now you go and you walk and live for Christ. The time that has passed is sufficient for the things of the world. Sin that you meddled in before you regenerate, that's sufficient for those things. Let's move on. Let's walk the narrow road. There are two kinds of deception in our world, isn't there? There's uh, when other people deceive you, which is bad enough, right? It's bad enough when people lie to you, and you got to figure out how to discern 
uh, even biblically, right? Who are, the, who are the false teachers, right? Who are the teachers of Scripture? It's hard enough, and there is condemnation aplenty for false teachers, and we'll talk about that next week, Lord willing. But there is a worse kind of deception because you can't get away from it, and it's called self-deception, It's the fact that you would deceive yourself into believing that something is true that is not. And this is the deception that is apparent in our culture today, that everyone thinks that they're okay with God, and no one thinks for one second if God is okay with them. Got a couple more minutes. Turn to Luke 13. Luke 13. I don't hear a lot of pages flipping. Luke 13. You're going to want to read this one. Luke 13 and verse 22. It says, Jesus went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And Jesus said to them, Strive. That's the word that we get for agony in Greek, strive, agonize to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then God will answer and say, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will begin saying, we we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. Recognize this, the familiarity of the people with a God they don't know and the familiarity with an eternity that they will have nothing to do with. Realize that. But God, we ate with you. We drank with you. You taught us. And they're appealing to their knowledge of God. They're appealing on the way they feel about God. And God's appealing to say, I don't know you. There's the concern of salvation. Not that you know God, but does God know you? Don't deceive yourself to believe it's the other way around. Point number three, don't deceive yourself. Did I say that already? Good, don't deceive yourself. Point number three, don't deceive yourself. Here we see a lot of people deceived, and there the master's going to lock the door, people are going to bang on it, and they're going to think they're getting into the kingdom, but they can't even get through the door because they think it's about them accepting God and not about God accepting us. D.A. Carson, uh, a great scholar, a great godly man in our time defending the faith, he says this, he sums up the problem in our culture concerning salvation. And he says, in much contemporary evangelism, there is little concern for whether or not God will accept us and much more concern for whether we will accept God. Little attention is paid to whether or not we please God, but there is a lot of attention given to whether or not he pleases us. We got it all wrong if we think that we are the center of God's world. God is the center of his own world, and we have the privilege to enter into that world as beloved children or cast out of that place because of your unwillingness to surrender to a God to whom the universe revolves. I want to encourage you. 2 Corinthians 13.5. You can jot that down. 2 Corinthians 13.5. You need to examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. You should test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, 
unless indeed you fail to meet the test. See, Scripture tells us to examine ourselves to see if Christ is in us. And even Paul, I love this, Paul can be soft and he can be rigid. And he, is saying, he even says here, like, I hope that you see that Christ is in you unless you fail to meet the test. Then the worst thing that Paul could do is try to give you some kind of confirmation that you should never have. You need to examine yourself. And I, I help give you a couple of helpful ways to do that. You want to examine yourself? You need to examine your works. Examine your works. You need to look at your life. Say, here's, here's my works compared to the way that Christ commands me to walk. Now, you, maybe you're one of those in here that are, you know, maybe, maybe you are really into self-condemnation. Maybe you give in to Satan's uh, schemes uh, to uh, cause you confusion in your faith. Listen, if that's you, you need to recognize also that the accuser stands before God in heaven accusing you. And we're not sitting here trying to accuse and trying to get people who are regenerate to doubt their faith. But I fear that pastors worldwide are so afraid of making either people mad or or perhaps good-hearted are more concerned with not causing regenerate people to stumble into questioning their faith. And we do nothing to tell the people who are deceived to examine themselves to make sure that they are indeed children of God or children of the devil. Examine your works. Second, test them against Scripture. Because this is the thing, right? I mean, you examine your works, you test them against Scripture, and you can say, although, First John, and this is why knowing Scripture is so important, First John, anyone says they are without sin, uh, they're liars. This is what First John says. Anyone who says they're without sin, uh, they're liars, and they make God a liar. So what I can't do as I'm testing myself and examining Scripture is to say I'm without sin. So the good news about that is regeneration doesn't mean that I'm without sin. See see what Scripture just clearly laid before me? But there is a reality in which regeneration and the works that God produces in me can be tested against Scripture where I can say, here's proof of regeneration in my life as I'm walking according to the commands of Scripture and thus in the metaphorical narrow way. And then thirdly, after you test your works against Scripture, you need to be real with yourself. Be honest. I mean, we are, the, we are the easiest judges on ourselves. And so many of us say, I'm so hard on myself, but you're, we're really not. We're really not that hard on ourselves. Maybe we're really hard on some things because we want more of a someplace, but really, in large, we're very easy on ourselves. But I encourage you, be real with yourself. Ask yourself, according to the text of Scripture, even the sermon, ask yourself, have I trusted in the exclusivity of Christ for salvation, and has my life as it has been transformed by the Holy Spirit, is it walking the narrow way? And when I fall off the narrow way, I have the Father who disciplines me, according to what Hebrews says, that any father who loves their children will discipline them. Do you, are you, do you receive the discipline of the Lord? You want to know another assurance of your faith? Do you receive the discipline of the Lord? If you don't receive the discipline of the Lord, there's a really good mark on the side of, I am not regenerate. Because your father is going to send you a helper in the Holy Spirit, and he's not going to leave you in his orphan as an orphan, and he will discipline all those that he calls his sons. To close, I just here's what I want. I want. I pray. Even a scripture says, "Implore people on behalf of God to be reconciled." And I want to implore you: if you're in this room and you have never. As you looked at this, you recognize I may have prayed a prayer, but I've recognized that I have never trusted in the exclusivity of the righteousness of Christ 
to save me from my sin. I trusted in a prayer that I prayed. I trusted, I trusted in, in something that someone said to me. I trusted when I walked down that aisle that somebody, that, that what somebody said to me was exactly right. But I recognize I've not been walking on no narrow path. I've been walking the broad way to destruction. And I have deceived myself into believing that I'm saved when I'm not. I want to implore you on behalf of God to be reconciled. Turn from your sin. Trust in the righteousness of Christ. And you will be given the Holy Spirit. He will regenerate your life. He will give you his Holy Spirit. And he will cause you to walk in his commands. And I am always here if you need to talk, if you need to meet. Because what we want to see is people saved from deception of the sin of our world. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the sharp edges of your word that shows us something of the genuineness of your love for us, that you don't make things so easy uh, that we're able to look past it. But in re- as Scripture says that Christ Jesus is the stumbling block, that the builders can't get around and that we can't look around, that if we're going to stumble, it's because we're going to stumble on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Father, as we stumble over that block, as we are on our knees, let us turn to you. And God, even for the Christian, for the redeemed in this room, God, let this be a message of encouragement and exhortation to not grow weary in doing good, to not grow weary in walking the narrow way, because it is the very birthright of the Christian to walk a path and enter the gate where we would have life abundantly, God, that we would have pleasure in you and joy fulfilled by submitting to your ways. Help us, even as we sing this final song, let our hearts ring true to the realities of your word. And we pray it in Christ's name, amen.